You may be seated. Good morning, New Life Downtown. It's great to see you this morning. Those of you who are here, those of you who are watching online or listening in later, we love you. We miss you. Hope that you are doing well. Prayer may be the most basic of spiritual practices. It's one of those things that when you're talking about spiritual practices for the people of God, the things that we've always sort of done, prayer is at the top of that list, singing songs, reading scripture, and prayer. It's even such that when we're talking to little kids, oftentimes in church, what we'll tell them is read your Bible and pray every day and you will grow. It's so simple that sometimes that's the way that we sort of just talk about. We end there. Well, if something's going on in your life and you're going through a hard time, someone says, well, what do I do? And like, just go pray about it. And yet, if any of us are honest about prayer, we'll also say it's actually way more difficult than that. <laughs> it's actually way harder than it seems that there's something about the life of prayer and spending time with God in prayer that can be exceptionally difficult and challenging. It's not quite as simple as it seems. And I know in just conversations of folks, sometimes when you're having those moments of, okay, how is your prayer life? How is that going? There are moments through our lives, we might have breakthrough at various times that we can say, typically, honestly, it's just hard, it's difficult. Not sure what I'm doing all of the time. I remember as a freshman in college, I was a new believer. I'd come to faith sort of later in high school and then went to school at a, a Christian school in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I remember just being surrounded by folks who I thought, all of the, everybody grew up in church and they all know what's happening and they all know the Bible and they all pray for hours and they all can sing on tune. And I don't know, and I'm none of those things. And feeling just sort of lost and behind and going, okay, you know what I need to do? I just need to, I need to commit myself to this. I need to commit myself to worship and to prayer and to reading the scriptures. And so there'd be times where I would take one night a week and my friends were going out and doing things. And I'm like, I'm just going to stay back and I'm going to worship and I'm going to pray and I'm going to read the scriptures. And so I'd grab like a vineyard CD and I'd put it on my CD player in my room and I'd begin to try to sing and then realize very quickly how bad my voice sounds um, and then just be self-conscious about that. If I could sing like Jen, I probably would just go for it. But I'm like, if somebody walks by my room and hears me singing, this could be traumatic for them. Uh, and so I, I would just be all self-conscious in these moments. And I was like, okay, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to read the Bible. And so I'd open the Bible and start reading along. And then there were really all these words that I didn't know. Like, what's a covenant? What does righteousness mean? These were not words I learned on the football fields. These were not words that my sports-oriented family ever used. So I'd be reading along, and then they'd talk about people in the Bible, and I'd go, well, I kind of know who Abraham is a little bit. He had many sons. Many sons had like, a, I, I know that. Um, but I just get lost over and over again. And so then I'd be like, okay, I'm just gonna pray. That's what I'm gonna do with that. I can, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna talk to God. And then I'd sit there and go, but what do I say? <laughs> and then I'd try to talk and then I'd get self-conscious again, wondering if somebody comes by my room, are they going to think I'm in here just talking to myself? And is, is that going to be weird? And then I would just sit there and I'd, I'd try for a long time and then I would wake up. 
because eventually I would fall asleep trying to pray and I'd wake up with drool spots on my Bible and going, awesome. Then I would feel guilty. You know, it's like now I'm just, I'm a terrible Christian. God can't rely on me for anything. I feel so guilty about not being, you know, I'd set aside a whole night to be with him and I made it 15 minutes and then I was asleep. And then after the guilt sort of set in, I just feel hopeless. It's like, I'm never gonna catch up. I'm never gonna figure this out. I'm never going to get good at these things. And just living in those moments. And eventually, over the course of time, with lots of conversation and help from other people, I realized that I had the wrong goal. And the goal was never actually to get good. The goal was to be with God. The goal was to be with Jesus. The goal was to just to be in his presence. And my even feeble efforts to sort of say, I'm going to take some time and I'm just going to set it aside to try to be with you. And as I'd fumble through all of that, I began to actually recognize God took great delight in those things. Oh, look at him. He's trying again. He's singing. Okay. In the resurrection, I'm going to get a new singing voice. I'm going to it's, I'm looking forward to that day. And it, it so is everyone in my family. They're looking forward to that moment. But there was something about just having that mindset shift to saying, actually, this isn't something we're supposed to get good at. This is just about us being with Jesus. And the second thing that really helped was to actually realize that nobody's a natural at these things. I looked around and thought, like, everybody just knew how to do these things since the day they were born. But we all actually have to learn how to pray. Jesus' disciples, one of the critical questions they asked him, it's like, would you teach us? We've been spending all of this time with you. We grew up in praying communities. We grew up in Jewish households. We grew up around this, and we don't know what we're doing. Can you teach us? Can you help us? Can you show us? And then they, even that, they fumbled so many times throughout the way. No one's a natural. We all learn these things. Prayer is a learned language. And thankfully, there are well-trodden paths for us. There are ways that the people of God have been praying for thousands of years that we can follow, that we can actually go to their words and pray those words until we learn how to pray words on our own. There are books just filled with prayers of saying, okay, when I don't know what to pray, I can go here. There are all kinds of ways of praying, praying through the Lord's Prayer or praying through other types of centering or breath prayers, things that can help us center on the person of Jesus and to be with him. And throughout the scriptures, there are just prayers, prayers to pray in the book of Psalms and elsewhere. And we're going to actually look at one of those prayers today in Nehemiah chapter 9. So you have a Bible, you can open up there, you can follow along on the screens. We're in our sixth week in a series through the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the first half of the book, is the most familiar sort of part of the book. It's the part that talks about Nehemiah's journey back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the walls. But the second half of the book, where we find ourselves now, focuses on Nehemiah and Ezra's efforts to rebuild the community, to rebuild the people and their way of life inside of those walls. And today we're picking up chapter 9, and it says it's the 24th day of the seventh month. Last week we learned it was the seventh month of the year, and the people were gathered together to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booze. And after they get done celebrating, two days later, chapter 9 picks up, and we find the people gathered together again, but now they're not feasting, now they're fasting. And they're confessing their sin and they're praying and they're crying out to God. 
And this is a little bit odd. Most of the time in sort of the calendar of the people of God, we fast and then we feast. We don't feast and then fast. It usually goes in that continual order, fasting and then feasting. But here it's reversed and scholars have spent all kinds of ink trying to figure out exactly why is it now that after the feast that they are fasting? They should have done that earlier on the day of atonement, on day 10, but now they're on day 24 and they're fasting. What's going on? And the prayer actually gives us a little bit of insight to what's going on for them. So we're going to pick up at the end of Nehemiah 9 and then come back to the top. So now today, it's the people praying at the very end of their prayer. Today, we are slaves. Today, we're slaves in the land that you gave to our ancestors, a land that you gave us to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts, to, to enjoy its produce. But now its produce profits the kings whom you have placed over us because of our sins. And they have power over our bodies, just as they, and they do as they please with our livestock. So we find ourselves in great distress. This is such an interesting sort of statement to make at this time because the people of God had spent a couple decades in exile outside of the land. Their city and their temple and their walls had been destroyed. They'd been taken out of the land. And over the last couple books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we learn how they've actually gotten a chance to go back. They're back in the land that God has given them. And then when they returned, they were able to rebuild the altar and the temple and reinstitute worship and begin to sort of orient themselves around the Torah, around the instructions of God again. And now in Nehemiah, the city walls have been rebuilt. And so from the outside, it can seem like everything's going great. Look at how far you've come. And yet they know the truth, the reality of their situation, that they are still living in occupied land. That yes, all of those things are true, and yes, things are better than though they were, but they still live under the rule of foreign pagan rulers, those that worship other gods and live life in different ways than they feel called to live. And those pagan rulers are causing them to have to pay an immense amount of taxes. They are taxing them in an exorbitant ways. So they find that their resources are being siphoned off. And not just that, but the way that they're treating the people, that there's an oppression that's real, that impacts their bodies. There's trauma in the space. And they're being conscripted to go and fight in battles and called into slavery because of their inability to pay their taxes. And all of this is happening in the land that the Lord gave to their ancestors. Yes, they're back, but not everything is as, as it should be there's a real sense that their exile is actually not over, that they're still living in the consequences and in the reality of exile. They still need something greater to happen. They still need total emancipation. They still need total restoration. They're in distress. And perhaps this morning you can relate to that. You've had a time maybe in your life where you look at that season and what happened and what was going on in your life or in your relationships or your finances or your work or maybe even in your own faith, saying this was a time of great distress. Or maybe that's today. Maybe you're surveying what's happening and you're going, the truth is, is I'm in distress. Things may look like they're getting better. Things maybe on the outside may look shiny, but I've been in this long enough. I've learned how to play the games. I've learned how to put on the masks. And the truth is that my soul's unraveling. The truth is, is my relationships are on life support. The truth is 
I'm gripped with fear, with terror, with, with grief, with anxiety. I'm, I'm overwhelmed with loss. I feel an acute sense of lack. I feel sort of pressed in or besieged on every side. I'm stuck, stuck in my life. I'm stuck in my relationship with God. I'm stuck in an addiction that just keeps coming up. And I'm exhausted. I'm just tired of it all. Some of you can relate, know what it's like to be in those moments. And usually what happens is, is when we share that thing with somebody, what's going on, we share the reality of what's happening, we very, very well-meaningly sort of say to one another, well, just pray about it. And yet when we find ourselves in that place, we're like, I don't know what to pray. I don't know how to pray. I don't know if I can pray. And these are the moments where we then go back to those well-trodden paths. And say, okay, I don't know how to pray, but there are examples of people who prayed in these moments that can teach me, that can show me a way of praying. Nehemiah chapter nine happens to be one of those. It's a way of praying, a path that we can follow. Not the only path, not the only way of praying in the midst of those moments, but I think one that's worth our attention today. And the first thing that we see the people of God do in this moment where they find themselves under distress and they go to pray, they do the most unusual thing to start. The first thing they do is they recount the story of God. They summarize the Old Testament, which is not the first thing that I think about doing when I pray. I love the Old Testament. I'm an Old Testament nerd. But when it comes to those moments in life where things seem sort of like pressed in, the last thing I'm thinking about doing is saying, okay, I'm going to recite the Bible back to God at this moment. I just want to get to the place where I say, God, I need you to do this and I need you to do it now. And I'm kind of mad that I'm even have to say it because you should have done it yesterday without me asking. <laughs> right? And it's, that's, that's where I'm at in those moments when I go to pray. But here they gather together and they recount the entire story. Can you imagine that? It's like, what are they doing? But what they give us is this tour de force of biblical history and theology. They give us something that becomes a guide for us. If there's any chapter in Nehemiah to memorize, it's these verses here. I think if you were to say, hey, I just want to memorize a portion of this book, I would encourage you to do this one. Because what they do is they start retelling the story. They begin nine, chapter 9, verse 6, and they talk about creation. And then in verses 7 and 8, they talk about God's life with Abraham and then in verses 9 through 11, they retell the story of the Exodus, of God's great deliverance of his people out of slavery in Egypt. And then in verses 12 through 21, they talk about going to Sinai and receiving the instructions. And then that whole time they spent in the wilderness with God. And then 22 through 29, talk about going into the land under Joshua and all the troubles and the time of the judges and even into the time of the kings. And then verses 30 and 31, they talk about the exile, what they've just been through. And they recount all of it before they get to their petition before they talk about where they are today, before they actually make their ask. And what the passage teaches us to do is when we're in distress, is to actually go back and recount the story of God. To actually recount our story with God individually and our story with God collectively. What it invites us to do is to actually remember in that moment how God has acted before, how God has revealed himself in the past, 
for me, those moments of distress are often related, not exclusively, but often related to those times where I've got a really clear plan and really clear ideas. And it's like, this is what we're going to do. And then this is going to be the outcome of that. And I've got it all planned and controlled. Um, and the outcome's going to be exactly what I want it to be. And then it doesn't go that way, right? The train just goes completely off the tracks. And it's like, but I had thought, but I had hoped, but I had planned. We had talked about this. We discussed this. This was where it was going to go. And instead I find the train completely off the tracks and the outcome is now completely out of my control. And I freak out. Like the anxiety just goes high. I'm like, God, where are you? And all I can see is how this is going to end badly. All I can see is all the problems, all the things that are not going to go as I had planned. And yet when I stop and I think back and remember each of those moments in my life, and every single one of them somehow and in days and weeks and months and years later, God put the train on a different track that was actually way better. That he brought some sort of redemption, some sort of life, some sort of newness in the middle of that situation that I didn't know that I needed. I certainly didn't want it at the time. <gasps> and yet somehow he came in to those moments and there was a way through. The people of God here, that's exactly what they do. They go back and they recount the entire story what our kids' ministry calls the big God story, tracing from creation all the way through the story of God. Why would we do that in a moment like that? I think it's because the simple truth is that we need to remember in those moments what God has already done for us. Because it's easy to forget. It's easy to forget the number of times that God showed up. It's easy to forget the number of times that God came through. It's easy to forget all of the things that have already happened because all we can see is what's right in front of our face. And what recounting the story of God does is it sort of distances ourselves from it just a little bit to see the greater story that God is telling because it's so easy for us to forget in those moments. But more importantly, it's what we need to do is remember who God is. To not just remember what God has done, but to remember who God is. Because in those moments, it's actually even easier, as easy it is to forget all that God has done, it's easier to begin to doubt who he is. It's easy to begin to doubt, to doubt whether or not he cares, whether or not he sees, whether or not he's present. And so we recount the story of God because the story of God actually reveals the character of God. When God reveals himself, he makes himself known. He puts his character on display in his story. We recount the story because the story actually reminds us not just of what God has done, but who God actually is. The people of God in Nehemiah, they go back to creation to remember, oh yes, this is the soul God, the soul God of the universe who spoke everything into existence. That's how powerful his word is. He can bring something beautiful and wonderful out of the chaotic nothingness that was present in Genesis 1. He speaks and life comes. They go back to Abraham to remember, oh yes, this is our God. This is a God who desires relationship, who actually doesn't stand at a distance and is unconcerned with our lives, but a God who enters into the story and makes covenant enters into relationship with us and then makes promises and asks for promises in return. But every time that we break our promises, he keeps his 
because he's the righteous God, the one whose word can be trusted, the one who is true, the one who comes through. Nehemiah 9, 8 says this, because you have kept your promise, because you are righteous. This is who you are. You are the promise keeper. In the middle of all that I'm going through, I can actually trust that you're going to keep your promises because you've kept every one of them. And it goes on to Exodus to remind us that God is the God who sees, who hears, and delivers his people out of oppression. That as they are there in Egypt, he sees what's going on, he hears their cries, and he acts on their behalf, and he makes a name for himself as the one who rescues, the one who redeems. Nehemiah 9 says it this way. It says, you have made a name for yourself, a name that's famous even to today. His character, his reputation is about rescue. He's staked his whole reputation on being the one who rescues his people. It goes on to the conversation about Sinai and the land. And over and over again in the original language, it uses the verb give. This is the God who gives and gives and gives and gives. He gives guidance to them as they're wandering through the wilderness. He gives instruction, the Ten Commandments about how to live as free people. He gives them provision, bread from heaven and water from rocks. And he gives them land, a good and rich and spacious place to call their home. He's the God who's providing over and over and over again. But what we see in their lives and what we also see in ours is that he usually provides in a way that we're not comfortable with. He doesn't provide what we want the way that we want it and when we want it. If I'm the Israelites and I'm having to sort of navigate my way through the wilderness, I would have appreciated sort of, you know, a GPS watch and a map, not a cloud of fire or a cloud of smoke and pillar of fire. Like, what's that? That's not helpful. So it takes 40 years to get through the space. Even then, they're, they're sitting there receiving bread from heaven. Literally, man is falling out of the sky. They're picking up and eating it. They're not having to do crops or any of those things. And what do they do? They just complain. They're like, it's not meat. It's bread. And rather have meat, you know where they have meat? They have meat in Egypt. Let's just go back there. God's providing for them. And they don't like what he's, he's offering. Like, this is just not what I want. I can imagine if I'm in that space and God's offering water then what I want to do is I want to order like an ice cold club soda with lime. You know, can I just get like a, a LaCroix lime flavor preferably if you, if you have watermelon or pamplemousse or whatever they call that? That's fine. I prefer lime. But it, can it be cold in the can, maybe with a glass? And what God does is if you dig over here, there's a well. If you dig, if you dig a well here, there'll be water. And that water will provide for you, not just for one moment, but for days, weeks, and months. It could be water for generations. And I, I, I want the lime LaCroix. And what he's offering me is a place to dig a well that will actually provide for decades to come. God's usually offering us something greater. But I wonder how many times we have missed God's provision or just flat out denied it because it didn't come the way that we wanted it and when we wanted it and how we wanted it? How many times did the prayers that we prayed in our, in our teen years actually get answered in our 20s and our 30s and our 40s and we just had forgotten we even prayed the prayer to begin with? In the midst of receiving 
whatever it is that God has provided, we so often just fail to give him thanks. And instead, we give him other things. <laughs> we give him a piece of our mind. <laughs> we give him all sorts of angst and anger. In the scripture, it says that God in Nehemiah 9, God is giving all these things. And then there's a couple things that people give him. There's at one point in verse 17, it says, they give themselves to return to Egypt. Thank you anyway, God. We're going to give ourselves to going backwards. This is what they give in return. There's another passage, verse 29, it says, they gave God a stubborn shoulder, which I think is like a cold shoulder in our culture. And they gave him a stiff neck. They're like, we're not going with you. We don't want that. Several times it says they acted arrogantly the same way that the Egyptians acted. And like, God, I know you rescued us out of Egypt and you did all of that, but we're just gonna act the same way towards you that they did. Over and over again in the story, they rejected what God had to offer. They either ignored it altogether or they refused it. They refused his grace, refused his authority, refused his kindness, refused his offers. How many times have we been in that place where we were saying to God, we don't, we don't want what it is that you're serving. We don't want what you think we need. We don't want what you think is best. We would prefer to go our own way. And this is maybe then the, the troublesome parts of this passage for us is in response to that, God says, okay, if that's what you want, that's what you can have. If you'd rather not have me, if you'd rather go your own way, then I will permit you to do that. And there are three times in this passage it says God gave them over, gave them over to their own ways, gave them over to their own desires, gave them over. And eventually what it ended up being is that they gave themselves into the power of their enemies, those who actually were set against them. Nehemiah 9.26 says, but they were disobedient. They rebelled against you. They turned their back on your instruction. They even killed your prophet who had warned them so that they might return to you. They held you, God, in great contempt. And therefore, you gave them over to the power of their enemies who made them suffer. God's offering them a free and abundant and fruitful and flourishing life, and they rather would have something else. And so God gave them what they wanted. They chose exile. They would rather have that. So God gave them over, but he never gave them up. And he never gave up on them. He gave them over, but he never gave them up. And he never gave up on them. When the very verse, next verse is this, but when they cried out to you and they're suffering, you heard them from heaven. And because you are merciful, you gave them saviors who saved them from the power of their enemies over and over and over again. It says, God handed them over, said that this is what you want. And they said, no, actually, we don't want this. We were wrong. Help us. Okay, I'm coming. And he comes rushing to their aid. Like, we thought we wanted this. We were wrong. Would you help us? He's like, yes, certainly. I'll never give up on you. See, God's rescue is always greater than our rebellion. It's always greater. He is always more. He is always greater. He is always abundant. This is another word that appears over and over again in this passage. It gets translated in different ways in English, but it's this idea of God's abundance. It's used four times to describe that God is abundant in mercy or compassion. 
He's abundant in mercy and compassion. Some of us grew up believing that God is abundant in cruelty. That the picture that we have of God is that God's sort of sitting out there watching us and when we end up in a mess of our own making or end up in a mess of somebody else's making, that he's just up there with some sort of sinister laugh. <laughs> Serves you rights. You finally got what you deserved. That's not the image of God in the scriptures. The image of God in the scriptures is that when we are in a mess of our own making, that God's heart is moved with compassion, that he actually looks on us like any parent would on a helpless child with tears in his eyes and saying, I just wanna help you. I'm so sorry that you are going through that. I'm so sorry that you found yourself in that place. I'm so sorry that your life is stuck. I'm so sorry that you're exhausted. I'm so sorry that the wheels have come off. I want to enter into that with you. I am abundant in mercy and compassion, and I just flat out love you. He's not laughing at us in a sinister way. He's crying over the brokenness that we experience in this life. The other phrase that gets used for his abundance is that he's abundant in patience, that he was patient with the people for many, many years. For years, he was patient. Some of us, the image that we have of God sometimes is we can believe that God is just temperamental. And he's just constantly ready to just be done with us. It's like, oh, that's it, I'm done. I'm so tired of, of you doing that thing again. I'm so tired of you saying that. I'm so tired of you walking away. I'm so, oh, just, oh, I'm done with you. We have this picture that God's just, get it right, get your act together. Come on already. That he's just constantly frustrated with us and ready to fly off the handle. And instead what we get in the scriptures is a God who's patient, who's patient. Year after year after year after year after year after year after year. He's more patient with you than you are patient with yourself. Find yourself in those moments where you're just beating yourself up. Like, I just did it again. What's wrong with me? And we feel like that there's a, there's a, a clock that's ticking and God's just waiting to be done with us. It's not. He's abundantly patient. He will wait for you for as long as you need. He wants you to be free. He wants you to come to him. He wants to be in relationship with you. He wants to help walk through whatever season that you're in. He wants you to be free from that thing you keep finding yourself caught up in. He wants you to be free from the struggle, but he's not temperamental about it. He's not frustrated with you in a way that he's just like, I'm done. He's patient. It's like, I'm here. I've got you. We're gonna get through this. I'm with you. So this is abundant in goodness in verse 35. Some of us believe that God is inherently withholding. This is just God's disposition is just to keep good things from us. That anything that's good in the world, he's just, nah, you can't have any of that. It's not true. God actually just wants to usher us into the greater goodness that he has for us in the world. The kind of goodness that we don't regret in the morning. The kind of goodness that actually delivers a life of good. A life of goodness, a life of abundance. 
He's saying no to certain things because there's something greater for us. He's not just trying to steal away all of our fun and all of our delight in the world. He's actually the God who invented delights. He's the God who made good things. He's the God that just wants to show us how we can actually delight in those in the right ways for a long time to enjoy a fruitful life with him and with others. He's not a withholding God. He's a giving God. The other thing it says is he's abundantly loyal. 9 verse 31 says it this way. It says, in your great mercy, however, you didn't make an end of them and neither did you forsake them. For you are a merciful and compassionate God. Friends, God has not left you. God has not forsaken you. He has not abandoned you. He has not turned his back on you. He has not walked away from you. He is the God who's abundantly loyal, who's abundantly faithful. And it doesn't matter how far you've run. And it doesn't matter how many times you've turned away. And it doesn't matter how many times you feel like you missed God. Or maybe you felt like you knew what God was saying and you intentionally did the other thing and you let God have some choice words about it on the way. It doesn't matter because God's abundantly faithful. When we break all of our promises and prove unfaithful, he just shows up with more faithfulness on our behalf. Paul says it this way in Romans 8. He says it very simply, God is for you. So who can be against you? God is not against you. God is for you. And because he's for you, nothing can separate you from the love of God revealed in Jesus. You cannot separate yourself from the love of God revealed in Jesus. God is abundantly faithful. He's loyal in the midst of this. And the passage tells us, recount the story of God because the story of God reveals the character of God and why do we need to know the character of God in the midst of our distress? It's because his character can still be counted on today. Then we know how to pray from that moment. We're like, oh, wait, what I'm praying is that I'm asking God to continue to be God. I'm asking God to show his character today. Three times in this prayer, it says today. The first time is in Nehemiah 32, 932. It says, don't treat lightly all the hardship that's come upon us from the time of the Assyrians until today. They recognize they've been in a heap of trouble for 300 years since 722. The Syrians and the Babylonians and then the Persians. And like, God, don't take that lightly. And then they go on and they say in verse 36, today we're slaves. We're slaves in the land that you gave us. And yet they also know something else that's true. They're honest about their situation today, but they're also honest about something else that's true. You made a name for yourself. This is the God who rescues. And that is also true today. What's true of God in the past is true of God in the present and will be true of God in the future. What was true then is true now. This is what the scriptures are teaching us to pray is to go back over the story to remember his character because God is the same yesterday and today and forever. So we pray out of that space of knowing, oh, this is who my God is. He's the God who is abundant in mercy and compassion and loyalty and the God whose reputation is to rescue. We see it again later on in our gospel reading that was read for us. We read how God did it again nearly 450 years. 
after the people are crying out to be free, God sent them a greater rescuer than the ones that they experienced in that time. Because he sent one to rescue them, not just from this political oppression that they were facing, but from something far greater, from evil, from sin, from death. This is what Jesus came to rescue us from. Luke 1, 68 says, bless the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to help and he has delivered his people and he has raised up a mighty savior for us in his servant David's house. As we come to the table this morning, I wanna invite Sarah and the worship team to come forward. Where we find ourselves today is in the middle of that rescue. God has saved and God will save. And right now we're in the middle of his saving project. So we can still find ourselves in moments of distress. And in those moments, the scriptures encourage us to recount the story of God. And so would you just take a moment right now, wherever you're at, and hold on to one moment in your life with God. Maybe it's the moment you first met Jesus. Maybe it's a profound encounter you had with the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's something you heard someone say sometime that changed your life and you just knew that God was speaking through that person. Maybe it was an answered prayer, a way that he healed or delivered you in some way. Begin to recount that story. And then remind you of his character his love, his grace, his mercy. And we're going to do the same thing as we come to the table. Every week when we come to this table, we recount the story once again. We tell the story of Jesus, the great redeemer, the great rescuer. We recount it to remember his character and to place our trust in him once again. If you're having any trouble this morning recounting a time where you really knew the compassion and the faithfulness of God, recognize that that could be because of those stuck images in our mind about a God who is indifferent to us or um, disappointed in us or withholding, as Jason said. And if you're here this morning and you've kind of been able to become conscious of a stuck image in your mind of the posture of God toward you that, that hurts you. I realize that it takes courage to come receive these sacraments from a God that may not feel safe to you. But that's why I want to remind you this morning that this is Jesus's table that Jesus can be trusted. That he would never take advantage of your vulnerability, but he made himself vulnerable. And I pray that if you do receive this morning that that you would find the gaze of Christ to be a new kindness for you. That you would receive a new vision of the posture of God toward you.
in the grace of these elements. So we practice an open table here. Anyone who does long to receive Jesus is welcome to partake of these elements, regardless of your church background or affiliation. If you don't believe in Jesus this way, thank you for spending a Sunday morning with us. We're honored that you're here. We encourage you to keep coming, keep asking questions about this God in Jesus. However, if you are ready to believe in Jesus and to follow his teachings, we invite you to join us as we tell this story again, as we confess our sins and we ask for forgiveness and we tell the story of redemption again. So pray with me, friends. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and in deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. It is my joy this morning to announce good news to you words that are true, not because I'm saying them, but because of what God has done. So if you're willing, would you open your hands and receive again the mercy of God, the peace of Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. And that demonstrates God's love toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. The peace of the Lord be with you. As those who've been raised to new life with Jesus, would you please stand and greet those around you in the peace of Christ. As we come back together, the words will be on the screen. You can follow along with them. Jesus is here. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is a good and joyful thing to give thanks to you, Father Almighty. You formed us in your image and you breathed your life into us. And then when our love failed, your love remained steadfast. When we were unfaithful, you sent your son to be faithful on our behalf. In fact, on the last day that he was with his followers, the very night that he was going to be handed over to suffering and death, he was eating the Passover meal with his friends And during the meal, he took bread and after he had blessed it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. 
And after supper, he took the cup of wine and after he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And he said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we proclaim this mystery of our faith, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. All of us who are in Christ are part of the priesthood of believers. So would you join me by stretching your hands out to bless these elements with me? God, pour out your Holy Spirit on us who are gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. May they be for us the body and the blood of Christ that we may be for the world, the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, would you make us one with Jesus and one with each other and one in ministry to all the world until Jesus comes back in final victory like we've been waiting for, amen. Now I invite the servers to come forward. Friends, these are the gifts of God. They are given for us, the people of God. So as you receive these elements, receive them remembering that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. In just a moment, you'll come forward to receive. This is how this is gonna work. Um, beginning in the front of each section, everyone will exit to your left and come forward. If you're in the balcony, uh, there's no one in the balcony, so we're good to go. Okay, so you're gonna come forward, exit by the left. Um, there are some prepackaged elements, so you're welcome to ask the servers for those. If you are unable to come forward, please ask someone near you to bring the elements to you and let's help each other in that way. If you're not receiving, feel free to just go ahead and come down anyway so no one trips over you in the rows and you're welcome to just walk by the servers and return to your seats. But if you are receiving, please come forward with your hands open like this. And the first server will place a napkin in your hand. Another server will take a gluten-free cracker and dip it in a cup of non-alcoholic wine. And they're gonna say some words of life and they're gonna place it in your hands. You can receive right then and there, or you can take it back uh, and receive it with those that you came with. There's gonna be two uh, stations in the front, so please alternate between stations. And after everyone has received, our ministry team will be available in the front. If you wanna have someone pray with you, please come forward at that time. Friends, let's worship together as we come to the table.
spring out of winter You're the promise and you are the keeper You're the one who holds all things together In my grieving In my sorrow Will your goodness stay You're forever You're the one who brings spring out of winter You're the promise and you are the keeper You're the one who holds all things together You're the first, you're the last, you're forever You're the one who brings spring out of winter You're the promise and you are the keeper you're the one who owns all things together, together, together. You're the one who holds all things together, together, together. You're the one who owns all things together. Spring 
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace, peace that overflows into all of those that you're going to encounter this week. 
Go in his love and in his name. We'll see you around the city or next Sunday. God bless everyone.